You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new film, Ballast, our guest today, writer, director, editor, and producer Lance Hammer traces the story of a single mother and her embattled son who struggle to subsist in a small Mississippi Delta township. Ballast is Hammer's first feature as a writer and a director and was presented with the Best Dramatic Directing Award and the Excellence in Cinematography Award at Sundance 2008. The film begins screening at the Lemley Five Sunset Five Theater in Los Angeles beginning this Friday, November 7th. Lance Hammer, welcome to Film School. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, where are we calling you? Where are we reaching you? Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles now. Terrific. Well, um, well, how did this story come about? How did you happen upon um, Lawrence and, and Marley and, and the rest of them? Well... Um, you know, it came about, you know, it was a long process. I I traveled to the Delta for the first time about 10 years ago, and um, it was in the wintertime, and it, it was this, um, I had I had an experience there that was very moving, and it had to do with, you know, feeling a tremendous sense of sorrow, and at the same time, um, you know, experiencing the awesome spectacle of the Delta and its, all of its natural beauty. Um, and there, it was just a, a combination of this great beauty and, and, and a kind of melancholy that was you know, very, very sorrowful that made me want to make a film that could convey that emotion, which I thought was very complicated and something that was sub, subverbal. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe film could, could communicate these things if I could you know, basically turn a camera on and turn audio recorder, recorders on and um, just show what I was feeling. You know, I was standing in the middle of fields and feeling this experience maybe it could be communicated to somebody else mm-hmm. so it you know it took it took uh, upwards of a decade to to um get figure out how to do it and i i wrote another screenplay before this that i shot some scenes from and uh started over again and you know in the meantime i was i was doing other stuff too but i, I never quite figured out how to how to do it until recently <laughs> now, did you have family in the delta um no, no, I just, uh, you know, it was just, I, I think, I think there are certain places on the, on the planet for every human being that, that have, you know, a, a human has an energetic resonance with that place, and mm-hmm. this is, this is one of those places for me, so. Now, did you go back, uh, you, you said you first visited there 10 years ago, had you, did you go back several times again before you made this film? Oh, yeah, obsessively, I've yeah. spent, I spent tremendous amount of time in the Delta, and you know, I've studied it extensively, um, academically, um, experientially. Just just being there, meeting people. Uh, I've you know I've driven every road that exists. <laughs> is, yeah. it, is it is it the is it the uh, environment? Is it the people? Is it a combination of that? What what is it that you feel so drawn to about the Delta? Well, I think first first of all, it was the environment. Um, in that you know that first impression I had upon my first visit. And then it became the people, you know. It, the, the people are, and I think that's so much what the story is about, is it's really about the human beings that are a part of a, of a context. It's, um, you know, it's not 
human-centric, this story. And I, I don't think, you know, I, I guess I don't see life that way. I, I see as humans being one component of, of a context um, and greatly influenced by the context. The, the human lifestyle of a particular region is, is different than another region because of its, uh, you know, the influence of the region itself, the influence of the landscape, the influence of the tone and all, the, all these things. So you know that ultimately, when I started to think of narrative concepts, it was it was still rooted in that a, a desire to see how human experience is um, affected by a place. I have to tell you, watching Ballast, there there are films with you watch, and you you're watching action unfold, you're watching characters develop, you're watching people say their lines. In this film, I felt like I was inside the room, and it has to do with the camera movement, the the cinematography, and the rest of it. But it, this feel this film feels so intimate that I really feel like I'm standing um, behind these characters as they're speaking to each other. And is, um, is that something you yeah. talked over with your uh, your your director of photography, or yeah. is it? Um, yeah, that's that's Lal Crawley. He's my you know my great collaborator on this project. We we um. We we were inseparable and kind of saw eye to eye on everything and just spent every moment together studying everything, uh, having you know, these ridiculously long discussions of yeah. esoteric <laughs> subjects. But um, you know, the the interesting thing was it, you're you're describing a kind of intimacy, and that was important. But what was most important was a kind of detachment. And for example, there's no there's no POV shots in the film. In the classic sense of a POV, where you you know the camera is the eye, mm-hmm. or is the eyes of the character, and we're we're you know the 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 goal of that being to actually be in the shoes of the person, and I never wanted to be in the shoes of the person. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be observing the person. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of detachment that's um, I think essential, so that you don't slip into. I mean, in this case, I was worried about sentimentality, and it's I think that's the the most deadly sin of all art. And yet, uh, intense emotion, I think, if, if it's true, is the goal of all art. And I, I thought that it was important to keep distance. Um, and, and, and from my point of view, you did. That's why, that's why I was saying, you're, I feel like I'm standing behind the character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the room. I'm watching it. But as opposed to, like I said, a lot of other films where you know you're watching a movie here... I felt like I was participating in some manner of speaking. By You're a fly on the wall. I was a fly on the wall. There yeah, you go. exactly. I mean, I think that was, I think that was the goal. Lol and I talked about it uh, in terms of David Bowie and the man who fell to earth, okay. and and it's it's this concept of an alien coming to. Like we we thought of the the camera as being, you know, or us being uh, an alien that that is can observe everything, you know, with compassion and non judgment. And and be present very intimately, like you know, inches away from the subject. But yet the subject doesn't know that the alien exists and is is present. So, I think that's how yeah. we we always studied the yeah. the the you know the composition of every shot. Yeah. These terms become devalued over time. Uh, they sort of lose their cachet. But and I hesitate to bring it up. But it just reminded me of the first time I saw Breaking the Waves. The 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 sort of the dogma ninety five idea. Uh, I know yours is different. I don't mean to say you're a do- this is a dogma film, but um, that that was one of the first films where I felt like I was, like you said, a fly on the wall in in much of the film, and uh, and it very much conveyed that in this film as well. 
Yeah, and the, you know, Lars Montreux is an important influence on me and, and on Lal as well. And certainly in the editorial, um, Breaking the Waves was the most important influence in that it, it you know, it's this, this kind of devaluing of the, the continuity and, um, and, you know, just making, taking the preciousness off of um, an edit and having the ability to jump in time, you know, liberally, um, the ability to just find the best, the best fragments of every, any take and, and collide them together um, to, to compose a, you know, a, a scene um, out of fragments that are, you know, taken from, from many different takes and, and don't necessarily have a smooth transition together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was certainly a big influence on me, especially in post. And, th- and that there's no music. Uh, there's no soundtrack. There's no. There's well, nothing. There, there is one tune. There's one. Yeah. There's one. Yeah. There's one little tune in the middle in the bar there. But it's you know it's part of the scene. It's yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. How did you come across? I'm just curious. Was there any significance to uh, I'll uh, I'll wait on Jesus? <laughs> well, it, that's a local band called the Canton Gospel Chorus, uh-huh. and that was a recording that they did in the '70s, and um, the local DJ of the radio station, Jerry, Jerry Lusto, who helped us with everything on the project. You know, he was a person that did every task for us. Um, but he's, he's credited as many things, but one of them being the dog wrangler. <laughs> um, but he, he, went on, he went on the air looking for... He, in post, he was helping me find that, that, that song. You know, we needed to find something. And um, I had been listening to the Canton Gospel Chorus on the radio around Canton because they keep playing it, you know, it's whatever, 30 years, 40 years later, 30 years later. And... Um, they play that these tracks from them all the time. But the funny thing is, they they only existed on. Nobody has any master tapes. Nobody knows where they are, and they have this. Uh, so Jerry went on the radio station and asked for, uh, you know, people to walk in with their copies of on 45, <laughs> <laughs> and we finally tracked down a 45 somewhere. But that's um, great. Yeah, it just seemed it was local. It, it was a. I mean, they're pretty amazing. I was I was worried about it being a gospel song, a little bit too on the nose, but. Since it's only used for about 14 seconds. I, I yeah, I, I didn't pick up the gospel until I read the notes. Yeah. Honestly, I thought it sounded more like a soul song when you hear it in yeah, the bar. That's, mm-hmm. And that's why I love those guys. They're, I mean, there's some, it's rock, you know. Yeah. It's just hardcore rock, <laughs> but it's uh, coming from, from the mouthpiece of Jesus. We're speaking with Lance Hammer. The film is Ballast. And... Uh, is is that about stability and control ballast? Is it, yeah, is, you know, I I wasn't totally sure what I, the word just popped into my head one day when when I was writing, and it was about stability, and that's as far as I really thought about it at the time. Uh-huh. And then it just felt right, and you know, later, yeah, later I I, I thought about the analogy between you know, the, a ship's hull has, carries carries water that. Uh-huh. Acts as a stabilization, depending on the weight of the cargo it's carrying. It, it'll take on water or or jettison it to to balance out the cargo. And and I thought that was interesting in that you know, these, it, this thing that's weight is simultaneously something that can destroy you or sink a ship, or or it's the thing that can give stability. So um, when yeah. this question of when is something a, that's weight, a burden, or when is it something that's yeah. grounding for you? And I think that's what each person is to the other in this film. 
We're speaking with Lance Hammer, and the film is Ballast. Uh, I, I have to. We have to get into the cast. I know that uh, much of the cast was locals, but uh, I, I, Tara Riggs, where did you find her? She she responded to an open casting call in in Jackson. We we did all kinds of things. You know, we employed every method we could find to to look for people. But that that was a that was a result of an open casting call in Jackson, Mississippi, and. She was ironically the very first person that came in for that part, and then I looked for months. <laughs> I thought certainly the the very best person isn't the first person. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's not a Hollywood story. It's always the last one as you're walking out yeah. the door or something. But uh, she's remarkable. And yeah. uh, did you did you know? I mean, honestly, after the first uh, after you saw her, did you think, wow, that's going to be tough to beat? Or I mean, what, what was your sense? Did she grow on you? Well, you, you know, I thought, wow, it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> if this is the first person, geez, it's only going to get a lot better. Um, but then it it didn't. <laughs> and and my um, but you know it's funny because the last per, for for Jamiron Ross the boy who who was my muse for the whole film and the, you know this he radically transformed the film for me. Um, he was the very last person I saw, and I, I kept I just couldn't find the boy. And again, Jerry Lusto, who the DJ, he went on the he, he well he didn't go on the air. He uh, he actually volunteered at the Boys and Girls Club in in Canton and um, suggested at the last minute that we go down there, and there was Jamiron. Wow. And uh, Mike Smith, is um, who plays Lawrence, he's the son of a preacher at that of one of the, the churches that I visited um, early on in the process. So we, we found some people in, in some of these churches. You know, I found a lot of people on the sidewalk just yeah. responding to their kind of physical and physical presence that had to do with the people in like the store or the delivery person or were those real delivery people or is that how yeah they, yeah know? most you know the every everybody you know those are the, in the hospital those are all the the real you know oh. emts and the real hospital staff we, we just took over for a few moments say uh and uh, trauma room and mm-hmm. uh yeah. and just had them do their thing without any direction at all it's just Okay, we're bringing in a patient. Here's the you know we discussed it at length the the nature of the injury and the way it would be done, and then we just put Lawrence on the you know on the gurney <laughs> and sent him through the <laughs> the pipeline, and they wow. they did what they do. Well, I want to get back to the the way this film starts. Well, the way before the you go, yeah. I'm I'm curious. You said that Jimmy Ron Ross was your muse, and that he transformed oh, yeah. the film. Oh, how did how did he do that? Um, yeah, I'm going to make a small correction just for Jamiron's sake. It's, he pronounces that Jamiron Ross. Okay, sorry. <laughs> and Jamiron, for, okay, it shall be. It's a tough one. It's a yeah. tough one. But he he gets frustrated when people call him Jimmy Ron. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Jamiron Ross, who plays James. Yeah, he's... he's um, so how is he the muse? You know, I think I identified with him in the writing. That character, it was my childhood, you know, of... Uh, uh, not the drugs, and and by the way, Jamiron doesn't—he's the cleanest, uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> cleanest shaven boy. <laughs> yeah, there is. He doesn't—he's not into any of that. But just the restlessness and the the wandering and the the kind of engaging your world through the natural environment, and being alone in it, and and finding you know the answers to the existential issues that face you as a teenager or as a you know I guess throughout your whole life. Um, and he was that boy, you know. Like I, I think when I saw him originally, I, I, I could feel that. And and then he, he's so he's such an intelligent and creative and sensitive child, and um, it just it was such a pleasure to be with him and just listen to him and, and follow him and watch him. And, and 
you know, we had we had this script. I, I wrote a script. It took a long time to write it. You know, I had dialogue, but I, I always knew I was never going to give it to the actors. I was going to um, cast non-professionals from the towns that we were going to actually shoot in, and have them contribute all of their own words and their own idiom, and you know, change the scenes as they needed to change the scenes. Um, and Jamiron just responded to that process very well. He he uh, he just so easily could understand something, the artifice, which was my, my architectural, you know, the architecture of the, of the scene or the script itself. Yeah. And, then, and then he could understand that, okay, here's, here are these artificial events that I'm supposed to uh, uh, imagine as my own life, and here's how, I'd, how I would respond to them. And, and he would do it with such purity and, and such truth to his own emotional nature that, um, I don't know, I just, yeah. it was a, kind of a joyful experience for us all to... Turn him loose. And were were the uh, the gang the gang guys for better lack of a better way to put it the, the gang guys the the people were involved uh, were those uh, were those uh, locals as well? Yeah, they all were. And in all of those scenes, like with the teenagers, that was some of the most you know uh, pure improvisation that happened. They, where uh, I, I didn't know much about drug culture, and and I, I did quite a bit of research on it. And then I went to the Delta and I spoke to the narcotics agents there, and then I. I recruited a bunch of these teenagers and then they they brought in all their friends and and you know there was like 25 of us at one point just sitting in a room going over how these things work and yeah. then we would we found ourselves immediately trying you know like with 25 kids um working through the scenes like and, and they were just all pretty m- remarkable at this and yeah and then i eventually cast it you know down to i cut it down to four four or five teenagers and and then we went into the spaces which were you know real the real thing well and uh, and then i would often and i would often just have the camera we'd turn the camera on and record and they wouldn't know it and that was that was part of the process that we discussed with them that we were they would never really know when we, we would be recording or not so they would you know they'd just be carrying on as they as they usually do and yet they would also be playing with some of the scenario at the same time so it was kind of this hybrid they were in a hybrid space of not knowing they were sort of inhabiting a character, but sort of just being themselves. Yeah. And most of that material is, or a lot of that material is just recorded candidly, and they don't they don't know it. Well, just watching uh, his character, Jimmy Myron's character, and these scenes, he, he's he obviously so in over his head, and this sort of impending sense of something bad is going to happen here any second uh, really came across. I, I I found myself almost watching with one eye, waiting for something <laughs> terrible to happen to him in this scene, and it conveys that sense very effectively. I I don't want to get too far away from from Tara Riggs. I, I just think that she's uh, amazing. I know that uh, she's won a few awards since the film has been out. Sundance, she did well there. I understand. Um, no, the the whole cast has just been nominated for. Uh an ensemble award at the Gotham, you know, the Gotham Independent, the IFP Gotham Independence, and, and Mike Smith was nominated for the Breakthrough Actor. Okay. All right. Um, well, it, it's just, I, I really was taken with her, and the whole cast, obviously, did a great job, but uh, I, I would expect some, some, good, some, some good things coming for, from her in the future. Well, yeah, well. She's, I mean, she, it's already happened. She's, uh, she's, she's intent on acting as her profession now, and she's been doing it. She's been in a couple studio films, this thing uh, that's, they're both yet to be released. And um, one of them was a Tim Disney film, I forget the name, but she's playing with Alfre Woodard in, in, in this yeah. and then another studio film. Um, so she's, you know, she's been busy and 
she's just such a, a raw talent. I was just going to say that exact word. She's raw. You can just you just see the and she came off that in that way. Just a very very real character, if you will. Yeah, I mean, and that's her. You know, that all the all these people. That's that's them. That it's kind of unfiltered. How did you uh, end up at that particular store? Is that one uh, that was stocked that way? Is somebody's store that you just uh, took over for a while? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a uh, Gene Bell's store, <laughs> Bell's Forty Nine, yeah. and uh, it, it was. You know, this script largely came out of my uh, my experience. You know, I, I always see something visually first, and it's there's all there's never narrative. There's always something visual first, and um, I'd spent so much time in the Delta. And basically scouting for you know seven years or something like that, and from from that scouting process came the story, and then the the, the locations were, became written into the script, and then when it came time to shoot, we just went back to them. So the story that that particular story was one of several that I had in mind, um, long you know pretty 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 early on, and it was it was very important not to do anything to it. We had we had to find something exactly as it was and play it as it, as it lies, you know? Yeah. Now, now I was reading where you shot this on 35. Yeah. So that was fortunate, wasn't it? Good fortune uh, because that's expensive generally speaking, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's the most expensive, but there's always, you know, deals. Yeah. So as an independent filmmaker, you have to, you have to make some good deals. And we did in this case. Now, you you also, you're the editor as well as the director and writer on this film. Uh, I understand that, uh, give us a sense of how long it took to edit this film. And and tell us about your experience in going to Sundance. You Well, yeah, those things are related, actually. Yeah, there um, you go. Because I I took almost two years to, to cut the film. And and that was solid solid cutting, by the way. Right. But it, it didn't have to take that long. What happened was I we, we finished the film in March of 2006, the production, and I brought all the material back home to my you know living room and started cutting. And I had a cut ready for the Sundance de- deadline for you know for the Sundance 2007 festival, and it just wasn't quite what I it just wasn't there. And I and you know it was complete. And it was a work in progress, and that's a very common thing to submit. You know, people rush to get, to make that deadline. But I have I have a friend, Matthew Greenfield, who's a producer of you know like Chuck and Buck and The Good Girl and Star Maps, and he wow. he um he has always said something that rings echoes in my head like every day. It's like never present something until it's perfect because you only have one chance, and time you have time on your side, but you don't have. If somebody says no. They don't. You don't get a second chance. So, I thought, well, if you know, the best, the best chance for this film, I think, is to is Sundance, like the best place for the film since it's an American subject. And it, it, it you know, Cannes was a very important festival to me as well. But I thought Sundance was the, the 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 best fit, and I thought the odds were so ridiculously low that we would get in because they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> But still, even with those odds, I felt like you you have to have faith in the film, and and you have to you have to plan for your number one scenario first, and and do the diligence to to do it properly. And um, so I, I said, I'm going to wait. I, it's not the film's not there yet, so that means I'll have to wait one full year longer. And you know, yeah. that's just the way it will be. And so if I'm going to have one full year, I'm going to try everything in the edit that I can. I'm going to try every permutation of every 
you know, scene. I, I went back eventually and shot some more material. Um, the, the film radically transformed. Uh, it, the cut radically transformed. And it, the, the, the cut I would have submitted before would not have been accepted, that's for sure. So, so this year you, that you took between, it really paid off for you? I, I think, I mean, I, I think so. It's one of those things you can't, you'll never know for sure, but I, I really think, I, I think it's a much better film. Yeah. And, and it, what happened was I found, you know, a lot of story material that was improvisational stuff um, that, um, that I was wrestling with in that first, that first pass, and I couldn't quite find the line through the story. And then, you know, I, I think I eventually found it. It started to talk to me in that second year, and it changed considerably. Well, Lance Hammer, it's a film that you should rightfully be very proud of. It is a terrific film. The film is Ballast, and we've been speaking with Lance Hammer, the director of Ballast here on Film School. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.